to Chasing Dramas. This is the podcast that discusses Chinese culture and history through historical Chinese dramas. We are your hosts for today, Karen and Kathy. Today we are discussing episodes 28 and 29 of The Story of Yanxi Palace or Yanxi Gonglue. This podcast is in English with proper nouns and certain phrases spoken in Mandarin Chinese. If you have any questions, please reach out to us on Instagram or Twitter at Chasing Dramas or else email us at KarenAndKathy at ChasingDramas.com or check us out on our website. In this podcast episode, as we normally do, we'll do a drama episode recap and then move on to some interesting history portrayed in these episodes. We return to episode 28 and 29 to see the aftermath of Ying Luo enacting her revenge against Yu Taifei, who killed Ying Luo's older sister. Despite Ying Luo making it seem like Yu Taifei died due to the heavens punishing her for lying, the Empress and Emperor are not so easily deceived. They know immediately when they hear that Ying Luo was around that Ying Luo probably had a hand in Yu Taifei's death. To protect Ying Luo, the Empress banishes her to Xinzhe Ku to do hard labor. And that is because when the Emperor arrives to punish Ying Luo for himself, the Empress actually steps in to protect Ying Luo. And that's where we begin episode 28. The Empress tearfully explains that she wants to protect Ying Luo so that Ying Luo can be the person that the Empress cannot be. The Emperor does not understand this, and so the Empress recounts her first ever visit to the palace as his wife. She was reprimanded by the then Empress for saying one more sentence than her husband. And this is our Yi Xiu from Chen Huan Zhuan, or Empresses in the Palace. From that moment on, our Empress knew that her entire life's role was to be one step behind the Emperor. As a wife, she should speak less and be more restrained. Her entire life must revolve around her husband, and she must be the best Empress possible. One mistake from her could spell disaster for the empire. This surprises the emperor and to me shows his blindness as a man as well. I mean, he is the emperor after all. He says that he never wanted to restrict the empress and he commends her for being the best empress there is. But it doesn't matter what he thinks, does it? She doesn't think she's the best that she can be. She has lost herself in the rules and restrictions and duty that binds her as empress. She is no longer Fu Cha Rongyin. Instead, she is only Huang Hou or the empress. She has to be lenient and kind and follow the strictest rules. She recognizes that her fate for herself, but for Ying Luo, the empress appreciates that Ying Luo can be herself in this palace that forces everyone to lose themselves. That is why she must protect Ying Luo, as a way to protect her former self. As the emperor walks out, he pauses and reflects that today he realizes that he may never have fully understood his wife. 
I want to pause here because I loved this monologue from the Empress. It's so rare in dramas, especially palace dramas, for a woman to tell a man, and not only any man, but the emperor, exactly how repressive the system was to women back in the day. The empress in our drama here was the paragon of virtue, but she felt stifled in the palace. Honestly, it's such a breath of fresh air to have someone say it out loud that, hey, you know, it's not easy being empress to the emperor's face. And again, contrast our empress right now to the empress in Empresses in the Palace, who basically spent most of her time plotting to kill the emperor's children. While we turn back to Ying Luo, she is now working at Xin Ku or the Department of Hard Labor. It is certainly a big step down for her from her position uh, as one of the head maids of the Empress. We'll discuss exactly what goes on at Xinjiaku, but for now, we just know that Ying Luo must work to clean waste barrels in the palace, the worst and lowliest job in the entire palace. But at Xinjiaku, we meet two people, or at least one is a new individual and someone we are reacquainted with. The first is Yuan Chunwang, a eunuch we haven't seen in quite some time, but he did appear in the past and was punished here. He was sent here, honestly, for being in the wrong place at the wrong time, for helping Xian Fei, and she made him, or at least her maid, Jenner, made Yuan Chunwang a scapegoat. And so now he's at Xin Ku. The other person we meet is Jin Xiu. She is a maid that was with Ying Luo at the embroidery department all the way at the beginning of the drama, but was also punished to work at Xin Ku. Xin Xiu is still mad at Ying Luo for what happened between the two, even though, I mean, it's entirely Jin Xiu's fault, so whatever. Regardless, Ying Luo's life at the palace is now challenging as she stinks from her work all day and is bullied or at least ignored. The thing is, this Yuan Chunwang is considered one of the most handsome eunuchs in the palace, so all of the other maids in Xinjiaku are interested in him. Jin Xiao is one of them. Uh, part of me is like, uh, ladies, you know he's a eunuch, right? But um, also, is he that handsome? Uh, I personally feel like Fu Hong and a lot of other men are more handsome than Yuan Chunwang, but whatever. Anyways, Yuan Chunwang is extremely cold to all of these maids and doesn't talk to anyone. He also just ignores Ying Luo, who tries to talk to him as well. She thinks that he might be mute. I mean, she knows that he's not, but he teases her that, you know what, all day long you don't talk to anybody, so I'm just going to pretend like you're mute. I love how in the drama, Jin Xiao is like all huffy against Ying Luo, and as soon as Ying Luo like goes up to her, Jin Xiao is like, oh my god! I know this is a crazy woman. Keep me safe. (laughs) With Ying Luo settled into her new life, we turn back to the ladies of the palace. Gao Guifei is over the moon at hearing that Ying Luo is now at Xinjiaku. Meanwhile, Xianfei has decided she needs more allies and goes to the funeral for Yu Taifei. There, she skillfully reminds Hong Zhou, the emperor's brother and son of Yu Taifei, that 
that it was she who saved his life many years ago. Apparently, Hongzhou went out on a solo excursion when he was young and got his money stolen. He happened upon Xianfei's family property, and it was Xianfei with this jade pendant, as a teenager, of course, that gave him food and saved his life. Now, Hongzhou recognizes this woman and will be more willing to help her in the future. He's also still rather upset at his mother for forcing him to play dumb his entire life to make way for his brother, so he is now rethinking, you know, his next steps. And this again is actually the first time we get confirmation that it was Yui Taifei who purposely told her son Hongzhou to not、uh, kind of vie for the throne. Meanwhile, Fu Hong. Finally, finds out that Yingluo has been sent to Xinjiaqu and goes to find her in the dead of night. Thinking that they're alone, he reiterates his feelings for her, even though she tries to turn him away. Fu Hong even vows to wait for her for however long it must take for her to change her mind. I think it's very sweet, but alas,、um, his declarations of love are so naive. He's like, I will wait for you for however long, and in my mind, I'm like, um, you are the younger brother of the empress. You have probably at most like two years before you need to decide. The various points, though,、uh, that Yingluo makes about why he should back off are also all valid. He comes from a good family. Is accomplished and has a fantastic future ahead of him. He shouldn't throw it all away just for her. Right now, he doesn't care and even refuses her physical advances when she uses that to see if that's all he wants from her. Fu Hong remains the upstanding gentleman and just gives her a quick kiss on her forehead before leaving her untouched. All of this is also seen by, or at least overheard by Yuan Chunwang. We find out that there's actually some other ugly things festering at Xinjiaqu as well. The head of Xinjiaqu, a eunuch himself called Zhang Guanshi, has his eyes set on Yuan Chunwang for his looks and gets rather handsy with him. I'm again shocked that they have these scenes in the show, but you know, good for them. Yuan Chunwang has refused all of this Zhang Guanshi's advances, even if it means that he must remain doing the most menial and gross work in the palace. But at least he won't be a play toy of this department head. Yet these conniving eunuchs have found an opening. One night, Yingluo brings food for Yuan Chunwang. He normally does not touch the food from the hall and instead scrounges for leftover and foul food. There's good reason for that. One night, Yuan Chunwang finally takes a bite of the food Yingluo brings for him, and unfortunately, it's been drugged. As Yuan Chunwang lies on the floor helpless, this department head sneaks over and tries to overpower Yuan Chunwang to have him for himself. Ah,、uh, once again, okay, interesting. I'm impressed with this five-minute storyline. 
In the nick of time, Ying Luo comes and beats this perpetrator unconscious, thereby protecting Yuan Chunwang. The two of them load this person into a carriage and sneaks him out of the palace after taking his name placard. By doing so, this would mean that he left the palace on his own and would be punished for breaking the rules. The implication is that he would not return to the palace, so now Yuan Chunwang is safe. I'm a little concerned as to whether or not this guy survived because Yuan Chuanwang said he'll take care of it. Who knows what Yuan Chuanwang actually did? Also, there's a line later on where Yuan Chuanwang's like, oh, Ying Luo, you were the one who killed Zhang Guanshu. Uh, keynote on killed rather than just sent him away. So, yes, I feel like Yuan Chuanwang definitely did something more nefarious to this guy. Regardless, the next day, Yuan Chuanwang and Ying Luo's relationship dynamic completely changed. In a change from his prior coldness, Yuan Chuanwang is now quite a jokester with Ying Luo. He opens up to her and shows deep affection for her. I'm honestly kind of confused with his stance of changing so quickly. Like, I get he's grateful to her, but then he's all like, you know, don't like Fu Hong, like me instead. I just have many question marks over my head as to where this is coming from. Ying Luo rejects his advances, but agrees that they will make a pact together and become brother and sister. That way, the two of them will have some support in the palace. And together, they will help each other survive in Xinzhe Ku. I still think Yuan Chunwang is just overly creepy and weird, but whatever. He's overly creepy and weird in the entire show. <laughs> that is true. The only other scene to note is that Ying Luo and Yuan Chunwang notice during their shift some outsiders. One includes a boy who is crying because his hands have been severely burned for, uh, I'll simplify it as an Iron Sparks show. These outsiders are preparing for the Empress Dowager's birthday, but the gimmick requires a lot of physical strength, which this poor boy does not have yet, but they are forced to practice in order to make the show a success. Ying Luo doesn't have much power to help the poor boy, and as Yuan Chunwang states, it is a difficult life being in the palace. Only if one makes it to a position of power can he or she make change and help others. For now, all they can do is to keep their heads down. Regardless of what I said about Yuan Chuanwang being a creep, he has seen through exactly how to survive in the palace. So I give a lot of kudos to his little speech right now because it just is the way to survive in a place like Zijincheng or the Forbidden Palace. Ying Luo at this point seems rather settled in Xinzhe Ku, but that gives the likes of Gao Guifei and Xian Fei the opportunity to strike back at the Empress. If we recall, the Empress is now pregnant, and while she and the Emperor are extremely pleased with this news, Gao Guifei is not. Xian Fei uses her skills of manipulation to goad Gao Guifei into striking, and an evening banquet during the Double Ninth Festival or Chongyang Jie is the perfect opportunity. Which annoys me a lot because the Empress even pushes her power as Empress to split between Chunfei and Xianfei so they can help her since she's pregnant. And so for someone like Xianfei to have just misconstrued everything about the Empress is just makes me sad. The feast begins and while it is a small affair, it is still rather extravagant. 
I, for one, love Empress Fucha's hairstyle of this episode. It is simple but suits her well. I think it's very elegant and delicate. For her meal, she has brought up a plate of uh, deer blood, which makes her convulse and honestly is like very fake red and bright. So she has this plate taken away. But as the maid tries to retreat, she falls over and this plate of blood spills onto the ground. This maid quickly takes the plate away, but not before a fury of bats starts flying in. And that is where we end episode 29. We will see the aftermath of this in episode 30. That is all for the episode recap. Let's move on to some history. In episode 28, Gao Guifei, or noble consort Gao, is frustrated from painting some orchid leaves. She goes on to destroy what I think were just okay flowers. <laughs> so I'm not like crying from destroying that painting. In Chinese culture, the orchid or lanhua has represented purity. The leaves of the orchid are long and thin and the flower itself gives a very pleasant aroma. So in all, the orchid just gives positive, pleasant, elegant, and virtuous vibes. Which means that the orchid has long been admired by poets, scholars, painters, and musicians in Chinese culture and are commonly mentioned in outputs of art, such as poems, songs, and paintings. There are also plenty of idioms that feature the word lan to represent its nature. Some include, for example, lan zhi hui xin or hui zhi lan xin, which is usually referred to a woman who is pure of heart and has an elegant nature. Now, if we recall from Empresses in the Palace, Shen Meizhuang was granted the title of Hui Fei in reference to this idiom. Hui zhi lan xin. The orchid or lanhua is known also as the gentleman of flower or hua zhong junzi. This is also mentioned in the drama. Because of its elegance, and I would say resiliency, the flower has long been favored by the Chinese as representative of the educated, the scholarly, and the learned, hence why the gentleman of flowers name. In Chinese dramas, characters will say, you know, let's become sworn brothers. Or even in this episode, Yuan Chun Wang said that he'll become Wei Yingluo's brother. Typically, people will say, let's jie yi jin lan. The lan is, of course, the lanhua or orchid. Once again, representing the pure and unbending nature of the orchid or this relationship. In our drama, Gao Guifei quotes Confucius and sneers at Chun Fei's mask of virtue. The first line uh, that Gao Guifei says is, which translates to orchids are found in valleys. That isn't the exact quote from Confucius. The line found in the book is, This translates to, the orchid is found in the deep forest. Even with no person around, the flower is still fragrant. As such, a gentleman should still be noble and virtuous and should not change in spite of poverty. 
These lines come from Kongzi Jiayu, or a chapter in the Family Sayings of Confucius. It is a collection of sayings from Confucius, which were written as a supplement to the Analects, and they were collected much later. So, throughout history, the Kongzi Jiayu has actually been questioned on the validity of these sayings. But in recent years, more and more people believe that yes, these are real sayings recorded、um, during the Warring States period. The main purpose, you know, back to the saying, is of course to say that as a person, he or she, typically a he, should remain steadfast and noble despite outside circumstances such as poverty. So even at the worst of times, a person should not throw his virtues away. I find it super interesting because in the drama, Gao Guifei scoffs at this. She goes on to say, "Sure, the gentlemen of old wanted to tell the world of their lofty morals and independence, but isn't that in and of itself a signal for compliment and comparison?" I think in her subtext, she's saying. In the face of true poverty or financial gain, who can truly stay resolute in their convictions? No one. What is fascinating is that Gao Guifei is also showing her disdain for Chun Fei and the mask of nobility and virtue that Chun Fei puts on. Gao Guifei knows that Chun Fei has an ulterior motive. She just doesn't know what it is, though. Chun Fei has. Deflected all attention from the emperor and has completely allied herself with the empress, much to everyone's confusion in the palace. See, you know, here we see that Gao Guifei isn't uneducated. She just doesn't bother with it. That I think is the difference between her and Hua Fei in Empresses in the Palace. Hua Fei was shown to not be as educated. Gao Guifei here is learned. Maybe not as much as Chun Fei, but as Gao Guifei haughtily said in this episode, I don't care. I just want to go sing opera, which, you know, good for her. Next up, let's turn to talk about Xin Zhe Ku. In so many Chinese dramas, a typical punishment for a lead or anyone really, mostly the female lead, the punishment is to send her. To Xin Zhe Ku to perform hard labor. This makes it seems as though Xin Zhe Ku was the only place for hard labor or for those who committed a crime, but that was not actually the case. Xin Zhe Ku was an organization under the eight banners of the Manchu people, a little similar to the Bao Yi group that we have mentioned before. However, while the Bao Yi group were bond servants, the people in Xinzhe Ku were typically of the slave caste. Those in the Xinzhe Ku caste were organized under the Imperial Household Department or Neiwufu. The Bao Yi were of higher rank than the slaves in Xinzhe Ku because the Bao Yi were ultimately free people. The ancestor to the Qing Dynasty, Nor Hachu, took many Ming Dynasty people and courtiers as war prisoners or slaves during his conquest in the early to mid 17th century. A lot of them were put under the organization or the Xinzhe Ku slave caste, and these people made the foundation of Xinzhe Ku. 
This Xinjoku, a slave caste, was hereditary, so people could not just easily leave the caste and were sadly bound to it. Only Manchu people from the Eight Banners and Han courtiers who committed a crime were punished to the slave caste of Xinjoku, so it wasn't like any normal criminal was punished to go there. As with the Baoyi, the people from Xinjoku also served masters from the upper and lower banners. Those in the upper banners had slightly higher statuses and worked in the imperial palace. Those in the lower banners primarily worked for the aristocracy. The slaves in Xinjoku had a wide array of chores and tasks such as cleaning, de-weeding, chopping wood, sewing, etc. Most of the hard labor was completed by the slaves of Xinjoku. The servants from the Baoyi class often didn't have to work hard labor. So it kind of sucks to be a slave of the Xinjoku class, right? Yes, comparatively to their masters, it sucks. However, what's interesting is that the slaves of the Xinjoku class had a lot more power, rights, and privileges than compared to the slaves in the U.S. or like you know typical slaves and actually peasants of normal day Chinese culture. What do I mean by that? Those in Xinjoku had proper residence status, so they had what in China is called a hu ji. That meant that they could get married with people of the non-slave caste. They were also permitted to take the civil exams. They could own personal property and other slaves or servants. Because I guess they were technically under the imperial household department and under the eight banners, they were still, I would say, a level above your typical peasants. They had opportunities for wealth and power. Indeed, several concubines and famous cabinet ministers during the Qing Dynasty came from the Xinjiaku class. It just is unfortunate for the sons of these concubines that uh, oftentimes that was like a big black mark on their birth because their mother came from a lower class rather than, let's say, you know, a noble Manchu uh, banner family. Which then goes to my final point. The people of Xinjiaku were not only women or eunuchs because, well, how do they inherit the status if there are no men? So Xinjiaku isn't necessarily a department specifically just for like hard labor, but it was more like a caste or a group of people. So as of right now, uh, Yingluo and what we saw earlier, Jinxiu, they were punished to Xinjiaku. I don't see them as their status also uh, shifting down to the Xinjiaku status of a slave status. Uh, that isn't shown in the drama, but typically if you're punished, your entire status would change to a slave status as well. With that out of the way, let's wrap up by chatting about the phrase that Yuan Chunwang mentions after the eunuch Zhang Guanshu tries to uh, sexually assault him. The phrase Yuan Chunwang mentions is Tu Ye or Rabbit Man. This is super interesting because we've talked about lesbianism before for this drama, and now we're turning to homosexuality and homosexuality between two eunuchs. Tu Ye is what was colloquially known as a male prostitute. 
The Tuoshen was the rabbit god of homosexuality. So if someone in any drama mentions Tuye, that person is referencing a homosexual relationship. Right, based on my surface level research, the phrase was recorded in the late 18th century. So we're a little bit in the wrong time frame here to use this phrase. However, the phrase might have been used verbally before it was recorded, so I'm not gonna, you know, put a huge ding on this. According to Zibu or what the master would not discuss, which was first published in the 1780s, there's a legend that goes as such. A very young and handsome imperial inspector was sent to the Fujian province in the southern part of China. A local man called Hu Tianbao was drawn to the inspector due to his beauty and fell in love with him. Wherever the inspector went, Hu Tianbao would follow. A little creepy. Okay. One day, Hu Tianbao was caught peeping at the inspector's um, bum while the man was in the bathroom. He was caught, and after some interrogation, Hu Tianbao finally confessed his affections to the inspector, to which, unfortunately, the inspector then sentenced him to death. One month following his death, Hu Tianbao's spirit appeared to a man from his hometown in a dream. The spirit claimed that his punishment was just for peeping, but his crime was one of love. The underworld officials laughed at him, but were not angry at him. So they decided to appoint him the god and safeguarder of homosexual relationships and affections. And as such, Hu Tianbao's spirit requested from the man to erect a shrine under his name. After the man woke up, he did so. I'm not quite sure how the rabbit came into the picture, but I think it probably was a slang term previously used still, um, which is why the temple is of the rabbit deity, so it's Torshen. The temple itself became quite popular in Fujian and for those seeking homosexual relationships. These temples did unfortunately become targets for government suppression throughout the centuries, but interestingly, I think there are more modern temples these days for people to pray to for homosexual relationships. Pretty cool, right? Yes, I have not seen this Tuye term in any other drama, but now I know what it is. Though I will say probably as we get further along with censure, uh, we will not be seeing these types of terms come forward in newer dramas. Again, you might see Tuye as a phrase uh, found in older dramas, but if you see them now, you'll know that it is code for a homosexual relationship. And that is it for today's podcast episode. If you have any questions, again, please reach out to us. Also, please do leave us a rating on whatever platform you listen to us to. That is super helpful. For those of you looking for Chinese dramas or movies to watch, please do check out our sponsor, Jubao TV, which has a number of Chinese dramas and movies to watch with English subtitles all for free. Online, it is on their platform called Jumo or XUMO. On TV, it is on Cox Contour or Xfinity, as well as Sling TV. This is for viewers in the States. 
Thank you all so much for listening and we'll catch you in the next podcast episode.